This podcast was recorded on January 6, 2020. The views and opinions expressed herein are as the date recorded and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities. Such views and opinions may differ from those of DoubleLine Capital or of its affiliates and are subject to change without notice. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. All right, welcome to The Sherman Show. I'm here today with my co-host, Sam Lau. Hey, hey. And for our second podcast of 2020, we have a very special guest, um, a Canadian here in the L.A. offices, David Rosenberg. Welcome, David. Thanks very much. It's it's an honor to be here and, and not just because of the weather. Okay. Well, uh, usually the weather is, is, is assumed, so okay. Exactly. We appreciate you pointing that out. Exactly. So, so anyway, Dave, um, been a fan of your research for many years. I uh, followed you back when you were at the old um, uh, Merrill Lynch days, uh, pre-crisis. I know you spun off and went to uh, Gluskin & Chef, right? But uh, I think you uh, have an announcement for our listeners today that you've started your own research firm. Um, it was Rosenberg Research and Associates, is that correct? That's right, uh, Rosenberg Research, because yep. uh, I love uh, alliterations. Okay, and double R. And Associates, because I've uh, staffed up with uh, a COO and an office manager and uh, three uh, excellent uh, economists. Uh, so uh, we really have a, uh, a great team. And actually, today, uh, is the launch. Okay. Uh, so you're asking me probably then what are you doing here? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, well, yeah. to, to be part of the conference, be part of the yeah. podcast, but also I, I have a team back in Toronto looking after things. Okay, good. Well, research never sleeps, as they say, right? So uh, to our listeners out there and those watching on, on the YouTube channel, um, what can they expect from Rosenberg Research and Associates? What do they expect and what can they get from you? Well, it's uh, it's it's the, the old and the new. So, um, you know, for anybody who has been out there uh, reading uh, my dailies, uh, what used to be called uh, Espresso with Dave and Breakfast with Dave and Buffet with Dave. Um, You see it always comes down to food. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, um, you know, I also uh, periodically did speeches and conference calls. Um, What's different now is I'm going to be um, maintaining that product line but but adding a lot more. Uh, So, uh, you know, if you want instantaneous data analysis uh, that's moving the markets, um, I'm going to be providing that where I didn't before. Uh, in-depth reports, uh, we're going to do our own, but if you want to commission us to do a special report for you, uh, we have the, um, the resources to, to get that done. Uh, and um, I'm also going to be including in my weekly range of technical analysis uh, called Technicals with Dave, which I haven't done before. Uh, and uh, it's really combining all the different disciplines. You know, at heart, uh, I'm a fundamental economist. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I think it was Mark Twain that said, uh, what we'll coined the phrase, uh, lies, damn lies, and statistics. Uh, the one thing that I do know after being in this business for over 30 years is that charts don't lie. So I'm going to be having uh, not just my chart book available for subscribers, um, but also a weekly set of technical analysis telling you, you know, or things, whether it's, uh, it could be corn, it could be crude, it could be copper, or it could be treasuries, equities, uh, or ratios, uh, are things breaking up or breaking down. Mm-hmm. And you'll also have the opportunity to come to me and say, hey, can you look at this for me? So actually, when push comes to shove, it's going to be uh, the same set of product service I did before, um, but we're also going to be the go-to economics department uh, for firms or for people that actually don't have an economics department, they can come to us. And what really makes it different, for the first time in my professional life, I'm not working for a big institution that has something to sell. Uh, so all I have to sell right now are my uh, unadulterated, uh, unabashed, <laughs> uh, untethered uh, macro market views. That's better, rosy, uncensored, right? And yeah. then you make up your mind how you want to invest around it. Uh, but we're there to be the advisors that we like to say in the website, uh, we call it, uh, we are the ones that are connecting uh, the macro and the markets and providing really uh, a framework for investors uh, to make the best possible decisions. Yeah, well, congratulations. Uh, thanks for spending the kickoff here in Los Angeles. Um, but I think uh, in order to really help you promote this, we got to talk a little bit about your background. Why, 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 why espresso with Dave? Why breakfast with Dave? Why 
high tea with Dave, and all, all, the, all the buffets mm. you said. So give us a little bit of your background. Um, did you grow up always wanting to be an economist? No, actually, uh, it's interesting that you asked that. When I, when I was in high school, uh, I actually uh, took economics uh, in, um, in my senior year. Uh, and uh, uh, when I came home and my, and my father asked me, so how was your economics course? Uh, I said, well, Dad, uh, you know, we, uh, we assumed uh, a small open economy with no government, the classic Keynesian model. And my dad said, son, I want to show you my paycheck. And of course, this is Canada, where over 50% of my dad's paycheck uh, went, to, went to the federal government. And my dad said, any course you're taking where they assume no government, my suggestion to you, Dave, is drop it. So, uh, so I did. And then uh, I actually went to University of Toronto in 1979. And uh, I actually enrolled to be in the Bachelor of Commerce program. I actually wanted to be an accountant. Uh, what I tell people today are just um, economists or accountants, but with personalities. But I actually started <laughs> off uh, in, um, in, in the uh, Bachelor of Commerce program. And by December 1979, uh, I, I'm passing every single course brilliantly, except the one course you'd actually want to do well if you want to be an accountant, w which was uh, uh, financial accounting. Financial accounting, right. I was, right, yeah. not, I was the worst mark in the class. <laughs> I, and so I go to my uh, professor. Uh, in December after the midterms, uh, and he said, look, Dave, you, you just, um, you have a mental block. You, you can't, you can't, you, you just can't balance the books. So I said, uh, Professor Lee, what do you uh, advise uh, your students who can't balance the books? He says, oh, I always tell them, go in economics. <laughs> so, so, so that's what I did. And, and I love I, the major bashing yeah. from professors, right? It's like, yeah. It's yeah. a, but you know, it's a, so that's really, it, it's not that, uh, I guess it, the way I would say it's not that I, I found economics, and more or less it found me. And then I realized that it just combined um, uh, a lot of things that I love to do. Uh, it combines uh, the quantitative part. Uh, it combines the history part. Uh, it combines uh, the, uh, you have to have an ability to write and communicate. Um, and to really, it's a, in some sense, it really is a study of, uh, of, of human behavior, of social behavior. And so it combines history, combines math, and look, you have to take economic history because um, it tends to repeat itself, write something else that Mark Twain said. <laughs> and you also have to take sociology and psychology. Yeah, and really after, after the year we had in 2019, I could see why you have to take a psychology course right. to get through economics. So uh, in answer to the other question about you know this Breakfast with Dave, um, which became its own brand, uh, I started doing this daily back when nobody was doing dailies. Uh, and it was really just after the internet, nobody was really sending stuff out. You know, People weren't getting 250 emails a day. Email was relatively a new thing. And uh, this fellow uh, named Bill Down, uh, who was the number three guy at the Bank of Montreal at the time, that's where I was, he ultimately became CEO. Um, uh, he had just started uh, on the Treasury Department of the Bank of Montreal, heard me give my morning meetings. I used to do the morning meetings for the institutional group. And as you can tell right now, I talk really fast. Uh, and um, that's what he said to me. Uh, he said, you know, Dave, you talk really fast. Um, it becomes broken telephone. Why don't you get your morning meeting down on paper? And then call it something sexy, and we'll market it. And that was in 1998. Wow. And so yeah. it was called something. I mean, it's been called different names. But I started at the Bank of Montreal. I left Mon Bank of Montreal in early 2000 for Merrill Canada. I took it with me. It developed a huge following in Canada. Uh, and actually, it got me top ranked in the, uh, in the surveys for economists on Bay Street. Uh, and I uh, took that to Merrill Canada when, in 2000. In 2002, um, you know, the powers to be in New York uh, liked that I was taking economics and strategy in Toronto and commercializing it in the sense of making it interesting but relevant for portfolio managers and CIOs. So I got the, got the top job in, uh, in 2002 in New York, and once again, I brought it with me. Uh, at that point, uh, we changed the name to Morning Market Memo. Once again, I told you I, I, love, yeah. I love alliterations. Yeah. And that's what it was. And uh, I was actually told... By the time I left Merrill uh, in 09 to come back to Toronto, I'd been gone way too long, and I was, you know, trying to uh, balance two lives. My professional life in New York and my wife and kids were back in Toronto. Uh, but uh, when I got hired by Gluskin Chef, uh, you know, reality is that Merrill Lynch owned the copyright or the trademark to Morning Market Memo, and I thought, um, uh, well, actually, it was my youngest son, Michael, who uh, we were having breakfast, and he says, Dad, it goes out early in the morning, right? And he said, I said, yeah. He says, cool. well, one just called it Breakfast with Dave. So I'd like to say that I, I get the credit, but it's actually my youngest kid, Michael, that actually uh, 
and it's stuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I was thinking it, it would be like Dave's Donuts or something, since Dave, the alliteration. Right? Dave's Donuts. Well, you know, I, I've been battling weight problems my entire adult life, so I'm trying to stay away from that. So let's just call it, you know, egg whites okay. with Dave and uh, and whole and whole wheat toast. But anyway, look, it's a it's a daily distillation uh, of my of my big picture, small picture views. Um, and uh, the reason why I have the espresso was because years ago subscribers were saying. Uh, uh, I'd like to get out your your first thoughts when you get up. Your very your very first thoughts. Mm-hmm. So the espresso is really just a, a stream of consciousness and like the first waking hour of the day. Uh, and breakfast has a lot more meat. Um, but you know, look in the final analysis, uh, the customer is always right. And so, you know, why do I have the buffet with Dave on Fridays? Is because people would say to me, "Well, I can't read your daily every single day." Because uh, the daily could be as short as 10 pages or as long as 30 pages. It depends on how many charts and maybe how much Pinot Noir I had the night before. Um, but the buffet is really um, the best ideas from Breakfast with Dave. And there's some people that just want the weekly. Some people, you know, uh, will read the daily religiously. Some people just might read the espresso. So really will you try and be to your subscriber base is all things to all people and make them all happy. So how do you come up with 10 to 30 pages of content a day? Now, granted, you said to depend on the number of charts, but when I think about the economic uh, data set that I look at every day, I can't imagine you know putting that much together. I, I kind of cheat and use the eco screen on Bloomberg and have it tailored a little bit to what we're looking at. But h- how does one have that passion every single day? Is it the Pinot Noir at night? <laughs> what, what is it? Well, it's um, it's a combination of things. Look, I, I, I'm fortunate that I've never considered what I do, and especially from the time period where I actually got uh, the, the chief um, acknowledgement, the chief economist, which would have been uh, the tail end of '99, and I had I could direct the research, I had the resources. Uh, I mean, I love what I do. I mean, this is a passion for me. And uh, look, I'm not a I'm not an economist of the conference board. I, I don't work at the central bank. I don't work in the government. I don't work in academia. Uh, I love the markets. Hmm. Now, I'm not a portfolio manager like you are, and uh, you know, I'm not a market maker, but I like to be that cog in the wheel that helps people like you make decisions. Hmm. And uh, what's my skill set is basically uh, sifting through the data uh, and trying to see things other people aren't seeing, and then how is this going to influence the markets? And so I. I, I have a passion for it. I don't consider it work, actually. It's, it sounds a little weird to compare, like, an economist uh, on Wall Street or Bay Street to, you know, a, a painter or a writer. You know, it's just a um, – uh, it just becomes a part of you. Uh, I have to say that, um, you know, it's no different than how I would wonder how William Sapphire used to feel when he wrote what I thought was the best um, editorial sections of all time how he must have felt about penning that every single day. How could he find something to say every single day? Right. And uh, But you can see there was just this passion, this love of being creative. And that's what I like to think that I do, being creative, but also being relevant and connecting those dots. So look, every single day, new data come out. Uh, new data come out that either challenge your view or new data comes out that uh, supports your view. And so uh, I like to dig through the data. And um, I always tell I, my, the staff that's worked for me for the past 20 years, I tell them over and over again the important thing, if you're going to be a financial economist, you have to stand out. Now, standing out doesn't mean making outlandish calls or purposely being uh, against the consensus. It's really finding things nobody else is going to find. Uh, and so that's really the the ethos uh, mm-hmm. that... Uh, that I work with. So every single day data is coming out and you know I, you can you can look at the non-farm payroll number for example we're going to get a another one. Uh, and oh, you know what does it mean for the Fed? You know was it strong was it weak? But there's a cornucopia of information out there. And what you try and find are confirmations, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like it's like at our it's like at the uh, symposium that we had when uh, somebody had brought up earlier today about uh, about Dow theory. Yeah. And uh, I look at that in the economic data. Like I actually will look at the non-farm payroll numbers and I will look at what happened with, uh, I'll add up rail transports, uh, air transports, truck transports, and I will look at the very simply sensitive and I always look at what did they do against what did durable goods manufacturing as a proxy for industrials. Mm -hmm. I know I might be boring you with stuff like this, but um, that's very powerful information. Looking for data beneath the data, beneath the veneer. Uh, retail sales, oh, look at retail sales, strong, weak, okay, uh, you know, downward revisions, upward revisions, okay, 10-year uh, note yield moved down three basis points on the numbers, okay, that, that stuff, but there's, there's enduring stuff beneath the surface 
So you have to be a detective. Like, for example, um, why would I, for example, want to look at retail sales or consumer spending on clothing? Why clothing in particular? Because it's got the highest correlation with something very important if you're an economist, which is employment. Okay? Because nobody goes to a job interview naked. Okay? Normally, you'll buy a suit. You'll dress yourself up. There's a very high... That's the highest correlation with employment is retail sales uh, of, uh, of apparel. As one example, or say restaurant sales. Restaurant sales are actually the best leading indicator for all other discretionary spending. Why mm-hmm. is that? Because when times get tough, that's the easiest thing to cut out of the budget. You'll just eat at home as opposed to taking the family out, at least for a period of time. So you're always sort of looking for these nuggets and these clues. So uh, I sift through the data, um, and I've been doing this for 30 years, so it's just experience, and I just know what to look for. And so then I write about it. So it's a different, whether it's retail sales, industrial production, durable goods orders. One thing I will guarantee you, I can't guarantee you I'm going to be right all the time, okay, because I won't be. But I guarantee you that, that, and this is what I strive for, is to give you information that will be helpful, <laughs> that you will not be able to find anywhere else. And then, of course, look, the markets are moving every single day. And so, look, a lot of it. And then I'll get hit with some big picture stuff. Uh, I mean, I have I have eureka moments all the time. I will sometimes jump out of bed at 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'll run straight to the home office and, and, and jot something down so I'll make sure I don't forget it. Um, for example, I was trying to figure out, you know, this, this whole, like, how did we have this last year? Like a 30% return on the stock market in the context of a four-quarter earnings recession. Uh, Four-point multiple expansion. Uh, and even you can talk about interest rates, but really what else was happening out there that could justify that sort of multiple expansion? I mean, what happened last year uh, has only happened one other time outside of recessions. When you come out of recession, yeah, you know, you get huge multiple expansion sure. in the context of earnings that are still weak because you're pricing in a much brighter future after the recession ends. And we're, we're more than 10 years into this thing. So I got hit with this idea where, and this is where, by the way, so I, I hired on my team the econometrician from Toronto Dominion Bank, mm-hmm. who built up all their macro models for what? For the BIS stress tests. This guy came on board. And uh, it's great to marry, you know, the raconteur part of this uh, and, and have rigor attached to it. So it's really the first time i got to tell you since my days at Mother Merrill in New York where I actually have that quantitative backup. Um, so we ran these regressions, which, of course, is what economists do since we're not accountants. We, we, just won't, we won't do T accounts. We'll do regressions. And, fa- well, that, and found out, actually, that for the first time ever, there is only a 7% correlation between the movements in the stock market this cycle and the movements in the economy. Uh, normally, it's between a 30 to 70% correlation, depending on your starting point and the multiple, which mm-hmm. also is very important. And so... Uh, I'll get hit with these ideas. That's just one idea. Mm-hmm. And and then I'll write about it. And then we'll flesh it out and write about it. And this all starts in Breakfast with Dave. And next thing you know, we'll put it into a full-fledged big report on its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of it is just basically, that's what I said, a lot of it is small picture, you know, data, um, you know, stuff that the markets move. What does it mean? Is it for real or is it a head fake? Um, but a lot of the time, the wheels for me are always turning no matter where I am and always trying to come up with uh, with creative ideas. So what do you think is one of your more controversial or, or some or maybe not controversial, but in the last 10 years or so, let's say, um, something you found in the data set that people weren't looking at uh, that either caused a big uh, uproar? You know, uh, in the Internet world we live in, uh, that can be a lot of hate uh, via mm. via the social media platforms or the like, but or had a lot of interest or people say, aha, I never thought of that. Um, what, what What's a couple of those nuggets that you have out well, there? Well, I'll give you one nugget. Which is that um, 2011 or so, believe it or not, uh, I started to turn bullish. This is the, talk of the double the dip reception. That's right. And I, I, well, I, I had been um, uh, uh, basically caught in the vortex of that back in 2010. But starting 2011, 2012, uh, uh, there were some things I was starting to notice uh, in the data uh, and how the markets are behaving, but mostly in the data. I am data-driven, uh, but data that give you a view through the windshield, because too many economists are just stuck in looking at things through the rearview mirror. So I just, something started to change. And as, uh, you know, the one thing that you can't be in this business is you can't be stubborn. I mean, you have to have a backbone, uh, but, you know, maybe the best thing John Maynard Keynes gave to the world was that 
that quip about when the facts change, what do you do, sir? Now, look, you can't whack your forecast all over the place. You have to have a view. But this was a big change in my view because uh, I had been I had been bearish, uh, stayed bearish arguably for too long. I'll say this much. I, the reason I got the perma bear status was because in that whole period from 2002 to 2007, I never turned bullish once. Okay, I just didn't, I know, and I just gone to New York in 2002, but I didn't get um, uh, mortgage equity withdrawal, you know, uh, you know, how these mortgages were being priced mm -hmm. and bundled and how you can get more than 100% loan to value ratio loans and how the savings rate went negative. <laughs> you know, a lot of funky well, just things. Because so house prices always you know, go up, I, right? I just, well, yeah. I, yeah, I just have this yeah. saying that, you know, when you don't understand something, just stay away. So I stayed away, but I did make a vow to myself coming out of that last cycle that, you know what, I want to learn from my mistakes. And I'm not going to stay uh, bearish longer than I have to. Now, uh, the first couple of years of the recovery, I was a big skeptic, and it's on the record. But when I turned bullish in, say, 2011, 2012, wow, uh, the bloggers, uh, you know, everybody. I mean, I got to say, I don't know if I, I don't know if I'm, 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 I'm people's teddy bear. You know, that they have to fall asleep with me at night. But it was a, um, I went through a lot. A lot of people were uh, actually very angry at me. A lot of the long-term bond bulls. Um, I even, I'll tell you the truth. I, 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 I'll tell you, I, some people, uh, some people unsubscribed, okay, uh, from my research because, and, and like I'm thinking, are you, are you buying my research because of my view or are you buying it because of the quality of the thought process? But it was a learning lesson. Um, but that was something then, of course, and then, then I, I turned bearish a couple of years ago uh, and increasingly so. Uh, but that was like one call, like, and I did. I lived up to what I said I was going to do. Uh, no one is ever going to capture the whole market for you, the whole cycle, and, and shudder to think that if they do, because if you overstay your welcome in a bull market, the problem with the bear market is that it's a trap door. It's basically a, an elevator going down. A bull market is an escalator going going up. Uh, so that was just, you know, one example of uh, things uh, that I started to notice. Uh, and, and a lot of it just came out of more... Hey, you know, I could say, you know, my favorite leading indicator has always been the yield curve, but I, there was other things going on at the same time, and, and the, 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 the forward-looking data started to uh, look a lot brighter to me at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's just this is one example. You know, the other one is, uh, is, is my, my view on inflation uh, and uh, that uh, structurally low inflationary environment. Uh, that uh, backup and bond yields will happen. I actually, I don't know if it was just luck, but I, I caught most of that 200 basis point backup in the 10-year note um, from from uh, the summer 2016 post Brexit all the way to the peak of November 2018. Uh, but uh, I've been a long-term bond bull right up there with my good friends Lacey Hunt uh, and Gary Schilling, and mm -hmm. um, and so that's been uh, and especially in the past year in the in the past year. Although I'll say to people, you're right, I was not bullish on the stock market enough. That's obvious, but a lot of that return just happened with that QE4. Right. Um, but sticking to my guns on the long bond mm -hmm. uh, held you in good stead. So when you open up the data set today, right, uh, you're turning the calendar year into 2020. Um, what is it telling you about the U.S. Uh, economy? What does it look like today? What are the highlights? What are the lowlights, uh, if that's a word? Uh, but what, what are you seeing in the positives, negatives, and how do you balance all that? Obviously, you're just providing the data. You're not saying this is exactly what you need to do. But how do you look at the bag of, of data today? Right. Well, in, in a word, uh, fragility. Okay. And this, again, is where uh, you have to really put on your economic historian hat. And maybe in some sense, uh, you know, go back to uh, uh, biology in, uh, in, uh, in high school because, you know, the economy really is a, it's a living thing. It's, it's an organism. And you don't shock one part of it without there being uh, some after effects on other parts. So let's look what happened. Uh, you always have to take a look because there's always, at any given moment of time, there's some sort of shock that's happening. Things are not stable. Okay, that's one thing we know about change is that it's constant. So we actually had a monetary policy shock. Uh, the Fed, no other central bank did this. The Fed did raise rates nine times, mm -hmm. uh, most of that under Jay Powell. And they did undertake quantitative tightening where they reduced the size of their balance sheet for a period of, uh, say, three or four years. The net impact of that tightening of policy was the equivalent in total of roughly 400 basis points. When you bring uh, the, the balance Fed, sheet into it. When you bring it, the balance yeah, sheet right. into it. Mm -hmm. And what we know 
is that there are lags, and the lags are long and they're variable. And they could be as short as 12 months and as long as 36 months. You know, people tend to forget that um, Bernanke's last rate hike was in May of 2006. And the recession that nobody saw coming was a year and a half later. And you can just go back in history. And it's not the first rate hike that's the mistake. It's the last one. And as if the one that we're talking about is December 2018. So... uh, from my vantage point, we came off a monetary policy tightening cycle, which, by the way, did end up for a short period inverting the yield curve. But also on top of that, they were continuing to unwind the balance sheet. I remember it, from it, September of 18, Powell's comments about automatic pilot, or actually yeah. that was a December press conference. It was the automatic pilot. Yeah. We're hiking. Everything's fine. Don't even look at the balance sheet. Right? It was, it was the slide of hand, like, look over here, look over here. We're hiking. Don't worry about the balance sheet. Right. We got it all under control. Monetary policy is best affected through the Fed funds rate. That's what that was the message that was just beating us over the head, and it was kind of being naive. I think with the benefit of hindsight, obviously, but that it was that the balance sheet matters. Right? Yeah, the bal- well, the balance sheet definitely matters, and that's why they're moving in an opposite direction right now. <laughs> right, and um, so once again, if you look at history, and history is important. Look, it's never obviously it's never uh, it's similar but not the same. But the reason why history is so important is because patterns emerge. And we're odds makers here. Uh, I can't sit here and tell you there's a 100% chance of recession, but I could tell you that it's my base case, but you know, not necessarily my only case. But what if I told you that historically, when the Fed engaged in a 400 basis point plus tightening cycle, the odds of recession in the next 12, 24 months was 80%. Now, I'm not saying the next three, six, 12 months, but you know that it's out there and you know where the odds are. And in fact, what's interesting is that the New York Fed model, okay, the modified New York Fed model got to 80% last summer. And now it's basically below 50 and everybody is is in jubilation mode. But, but it doesn't, it, this is exactly where it is. It usually at the time of recession when the yield curve is already re-steepened because the Fed's cut rates, but it's too late. Uh, you know, the, 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 the damage has been done. Um, you know, I might be uh, from Toronto, but I'm close enough to Quebec uh, to know uh, the old uh, term, uh, les jeux sont faits, uh, which means that, um, uh, that, uh, that it's in the cards, basically. So uh, the way I see it, we had a monetary, pi- monetary policy tightening cycle, and as you would expect, it hit the intersensitive sector of the economy first. What was that? It was housing. You know when I tell people that residential construction and the national accounts data has been negative for six of the past seven quarters, nobody believes it. They go to the data to, to, to find it. Uh, and of course, maybe we had a bull market for a good while in multifamily housing, but single family was never that strong, and that's the dominant force. Uh, then uh, in uh, three of the past four quarters, we've had commercial construction in its own recession. Uh, two of the past three quarters, capital spending, which has dried up, has been flat or negative, and now it's hitting exports. So we had a monetary policy tightening cycle. Uh, on top of that, we then had a, uh, from the monetary policy shock, we had the trade shock. And once again, you know, everybody is jubilation because of phase one. What does phase one really mean? I mean, once again, les jeux sont faits. The, 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 the gig is up. You know, that people don't realize that the damage has already been done. The average tariff rate on imports from China is 16%. Okay, so we didn't go with the tariffs at Christmas time. That's great. Um, but before the trade war started, the average tariff rate was 3%. Now it's 16%. And this is a long-term, a long-term war, not just of uh, uh, economic power, but of um, ideology. This is actually the first time in our lives. Anybody that's alive today has not seen this. Uh, where the uh, U.S. economic hegemony is being challenged by another power. Mm -hmm. This is not like the Cold War, uh, which is more of a, say, a nuclear buildup war. This is actually an outright economic war, and Phase 1 was really expedient for the president to not have to generate a consumer recession uh, heading into an election year. And, of course, uh, the biggest irony last year was that in the Chinese year of the pig, 
a third of their pig population got wiped out by the African swine flu. Be so, careful. So you they, can't write about that. Yeah, I, I, someone exactly. made a headline about I that. Think, and, yeah. yeah, I think from yeah. UBS. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll just talk about yeah. it. I won't write about it. But uh, <laughs> but but the thing is that they so, – so it was really a phase one of necessity, but it doesn't really change a, a whole lot. But you mentioned the hegemony. What, what about the dollar status there? What do you, what do you think about it with that the challenging the, the, the world's reserve currency as well? Because you're talking about the economic challenges to it. What about to the ultimate currency? Right. Well, uh, I'm not I'm not bullish on the U.S. dollar, and, and I'll tell you why. It's because I think that the Fed, I, I think the economy, when I said fragile, I think that I think recessionary pressures are going to build. Uh, I think that inflation, underlying inflation, because we know what oil is doing, of course, not sure. included in the core, but right. uh, but that's going to be a deflationary shock on the rest of the economy, and so far as oil prices continue to move higher because of this new geopolitical risk. Mm-hmm. But underlying inflation is going to continue to frustrate the Fed to the downside. The economy, I think, is going to remain weak. I think that Donald Trump is going to continue to use uh, Jerome Powell as his uh, personal uh, pinata. And, uh, and, but I think that irrespective of the political pressure, I think that there will be economic pressure for the Fed to cut rates at a time when most of the rest of the world is pretty well done. And those uh, compression of interest rate differentials will lead to a weaker U.S. dollar. So I'm bearish on the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, you know, even though we're seeing um, – uh, we are seeing uh, the People's Bank of China and Russia, some of the major central banks are increasingly gravitating away – uh, from the U.S. dollar, interestingly enough, uh, and they've been moving into gold. Mm-hmm. Well, gold's not going to replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. It's um, not enough although, to go around, really. No, well, <laughs> the, 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 the problem is, is is that I do think about that. I mean, I don't know if we'll see that in our, in our, in our lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think that there will be a time, uh, and the history will, will bear this out. Or, or then again, maybe the U.S. is just still going to be the best experiment um, uh, in humanity of all time, or certainly in modern history, of uh, uh, and and having property rights and uh, and stability um, uh, on a relative basis still matters a lot. So, which is uh, kind of I, the crux I, of part of the trade war too, right? Or at least that's that's what it looks like on the surface too. Is is the violation of the IP and you right, know. right? That's exactly no property rights. I mean, so that's why you know people say to me, um, and a lot, a lot of them are the gold bugs, uh, and. Um, uh, and I like gold too. In fact, people, some people call me Goldberg, but no, it's still Rosenberg. Uh, but it's the question is for what's the alternative to the U.S. dollar? Is what is the other reserve currency? And it's certainly not the renminbi. And, and people were saying, I remember all the way back to 1999. You know, when the the new kid on the block was the euro. Oh, the euro was going to supplant yep. uh, the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, back what was the IPO? Uh, 120 and the euro, and. Uh, yeah, it sounds about right. Then it just collapsed almost yeah, immediately. Right, but, yeah. yeah. So yeah. anyway, it's right. a uh, but. But I am bearish on, on the U.S. dollar for relative monetary policy um, movements. But I don't think that we're going to be necessarily moving away from the U.S. dollar's reserve currency just yet. I'll tell you this much, though. It is interesting that everybody's debating what the Fed is doing on its balance sheet. They are. I mean, can you believe that in the past four months, more than 100 percent of the fiscal deficit? Uh, has been has been uh, covered off by the Fed's by the balance, balance sheet, sheet right. and yeah. you, you, should, you sort of sometimes think don't emerging markets tend to do that or uh, you don't usually look at that from these and that's the one thing that I, I'm thinking about when historians write about this period and but maybe, I'm talking about historians like maybe a hundred years from now sure. that maybe this was actually all the stuff happening right now you know trade wars and um, uh, and, uh, and 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 central bank intervention at a time of three and a half percent unemployment. I mean, this is the sort of stuff you expect to happen, you know, in a recession. Yeah, yeah. recession hasn't even started yet. So, look, you start thinking about these things, but the reality is that there is no alternative to the U.S. dollar just yet. So, with that, I mean, on the historian part, looking forward, you know, ten, twenty, hundred years, are people going to look back and see this experiment of monetary policy through balance sheets as a failure or a great success? Do you think? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, probably is a failure, um, but they're not done. I mean, they're not done. All this is just part and parcel of what they call, uh, uh, let's just call it, non-conventional policy accommodation. Um, I think negative interest rates uh, that will be viewed as a big mistake, uh, and for a whole 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 host of reasons. I think that what's going to happen uh, ultimately, uh, and this is how we're going to have to reset everything to the next cycle is we have to have giant debt default. Mm-hmm. Now, it can be nasty or it could be benevolent. Um, when people talk about modern monetary theory or the magical money tree, 
Um, there's really nothing new there. Uh, everything, actually, everything anybody ever needed to know about anything the Fed was going to do for the next decade was right there in Ben Bernanke's, Governor Bernanke at the time, in his famous November uh, 2002 speech uh, that he gave, uh, where almost every acronym the Fed ever did, from TAF to TALF, uh, was in there. <laughs> but the big bomb, which was uh, debt monetization, um, well, the Fed never went that far. He was doing the Japanese, you, though, for he, so long, right? Yeah, and it's it, like we followed in those footsteps, right. right? Well, he talked about quantitative easing in that speech, yeah. too. But you see, they didn't go that far. They took the funds rate to 1%, left it there for a year as GDP repped from really uh, from June of 03. That was the last rate cut was June of 03. The recession was already over by almost two years. They were still cutting interest rates. Uh, and then they left them there, and then they realized they created – it was like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. They created the monster, <laughs> which was the housing bubble, and ultimately it had to get uh, torn down. But Bernanke Ber – Bernanke, look, Ber Bernanke is a genius. There's, there's no, Whether you agree with his policies or not, he he's really is a monetary policy genius. And uh, everybody knew that when he came on board in, in – uh, I forget if it was 2001, 2002. He was like the Richard Clarita today. Everybody knew that Bernanke was going to be the guy to ultimately replace Alan Greenspan, mm -hmm. uh, and he was. Uh, and a, a lot of the speeches he gave at the beginning of his tenure as governor uh, had a lot of heft. And, and it's, it's, when you think about it, he talked about a lot of the things they were going to do, and then it was basically you know seven years later that they started implementing it. But they never went with the big bomb, which is what you would call – well, in fact, he called it a money-financed tax cut. It could be different ways. It really is just basically what happens is that the Treasury takes a, a I don't know, 5 or $10 trillion perpetual coin or call it a century bond, places it on the Fed's balance sheet, and the Fed It was the prints. trillion dollar coin, right? Why didn't people, people talked yeah. about the trillion well, dollar coin, well, right? There's, there's, yeah. Well, so, yeah. you know, the modern monetary theory people, well, because uh, there's no spending program they're not going to sign on to, so uh, they're not going to sign on to, so uh, you know, you green energy here and infrastructure there. I think that what we would want to do if you're going to embark on this uh, is, uh, and I think that actually at a period where you have this global output gap, we have still have a deflationary output gap globally. So I, I'm not actually saying this shouldn't happen. This actually is probably going to have to happen. We have to have a benevolent, a benevolent, uh, we can call it taxpayer supporter if you want, uh, taxpayer in the future, uh, but we have to have, and it's actually, it's written in the Old Testament, by the way, uh, as I uh, put on my religious hat, but I'm not religious, but uh, whether you go to Leviticus or Deuteronomy, you're going to see the references to something called the debt jubilee. jubilee. It's there. So um, that's the way I see this cycle. Now, now, the reality is that the Fed at that point loses control of the monetary base, and at that point we'll be talking about big inflation, and it can't just be the Fed alone or else the U.S. dollar will collapse, so it has to be uh, the BOJ and the ECB and the Bank of England. But when it came to cutting rates and dollar swap lines and it came to QE, it was all, it was all coordinated central bank action. This will have to be coordinated on a global scale. But what we have to do is reset the button mm -hmm. because the global debt is the biggest tourniquet. We'll talk about aging demographics, yes, and industrialized world, 100%. Uh, you know, uh, we could talk about, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, the disruption from technology, uh, robotics. Maybe one of the reasons why wage growth hasn't done a whole lot is because you're not fearing your competitor who's a human being but who's a robot who can do your job now. Not doesn't, just require, doesn't require pay hikes either, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah right. And, um, and, so, and so there's these, 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 uh, these, these secular forces. But I would say that the most pernicious constraint on aggregate demand globally uh, is the level of debt. This has been the mother of all debt cycles. I mean, that's all I wrote about. When I was at Merrill Lynch uh, from 02 to 07, you look at global debt, global debt from 02 to 07, peak to peak, uh, debt went up uh, $30 trillion. GDP globally went up $25 trillion. Okay, so would you say that debt went up by 20% more than GDP? Look at this cycle, this cycle. This cycle from the 07 peak till today, the level of global debt has gone up $128 trillion. $123 trillion. And GDP, the income to support that debt, <laughs> has gone up $27 trillion. So, so you're talking about a situation, this cycle, where you're, people are talking about, well, it's been an economic growth cycle. Yeah. 
finest. I mean, the, the level of debt went up by a factor of more than four vis-a-vis the increase in income. And here we're left with this massive amount of debt that really has come at the expense of future consumption and investment. This is what we're left with. So uh, we've tried, good grief, we've tried to reflate our way out of this debt, haven't we? We've tried every which way uh, with negative interest rates, endless quantitative easing, um, uh, free money for uh, a decade, uh, uh, and there's something structurally amiss here. There's so I think that that's how the cycle ends, is we have to basically reset the dial, and it's going to take – and I think this comes in the next recession. I mean, remember how the Fed fought uh, the uh, the housing recession, took the funds rate to 1%. Who would have thought that was going to happen? Negative real rates for an extended period of time. Followed that up with, with QE in the next cycle. Uh, and um, just think of how hard they're going to fight the next recession. So I actually think this is very, very plausible. And that's where, by the way, if we do it right, if we and, and look, part of this is going to be eliminating whatever the one point six, one point seven trillion dollars of student debt. That's like nobody talks about that. I mean, we're talking about Medicare for all, talking about all these other things, green energy. Nobody talks about actually. I would say one of the most fundamental constraints on the economy is the fact that the millennials and the group behind them. Um, are just strapped with too much debt. They have no FICO score. That's why we had no normal housing re- recovery. So I'd say, yeah, you know, you're going to say, oh, so you're going to bail out the sinners. You know, we, we we already uncovered the moral hazard in the last <laughs> cycle, okay? So the answer is that, uh, the answer is yes, I think that debt monetization or the debt jubilee is going to be the final chapter. Uh, and if it's done right, I think that, and we can eliminate uh, the debt and, and of course, uh, it ends up getting put on the Fed's balance sheet to perpetuity. It has to be viewed that this is actually a permanent change. Yeah. Uh, I think that then we will probably go through a more sustainable period of reflation and agri-demand growth. So as you think about it, and you're, you're laying out the case for the recession, uh, is it going to be a deep recession? Is it going to be prolonged? Is it all a function of how the masters of the universe, that's what I call the central bankers these days, it's no longer the hedge fund people, it's it's definitely the central banks that are the, the masters of the universe. Um, is it going to, are they going to be able to respond quickly, handle this problem, or is it going to be deep? Because uh, I think when people talk about recessions, it used to be recessions just part of the business cycle, right? It's it's essentially a corporate restructuring. You're talking about a essentially a global debt restructuring, but it's the same idea. Um, but what's happened in the last two recessions in the U.S., they, they were pretty pretty severe, right? And one was kind of concentrated in tech and telecom, and it bled over into fraud and all, and really kind of hit hit harder. But then we had the financial crisis, which everybody thinks that's what a standard recession is. Is it possible to actually have just a standard recession, whatever that means, um, you know, where it's, you know, three to five quarters, you know, it, it's not the same as prolonged, or is it going to be that we're going to have to face the music and it's going to look like perhaps the last one? Obviously not in the same capacity, right. it's not like the same drivers, but I'm saying the magnitude, the fear, is it going to get to that level? Well, you know, look, there's no uh, get-out-of-jail-free card here. Uh, and uh, what I mean by that is is that the recession, the economic recession, is probably going to be uh, rather mild because we don't have a lot of the economic imbalances. The imbalances are more financial imbalances. Mm-hmm. It sort of reminds me a little bit of, uh, well, the cycle that you mentioned, which was the dot-coms, uh, where we had a a very mild recession. In fact, when you look at the GDP numbers today, you could hard, you can hardly see the recession of uh, of 2001 and uh, 2002. Uh, that didn't stop the Nasdaq from collapsing. You know, whatever it was 70, 80 percent, mm-hmm. and the S and P was down 40 percent. Um, so you could have uh, deep recessions. Uh, I would say that um, uh, the recession of uh, 19. Uh, 1991 was a deeper recession mm-hmm. than, uh, and yet the stock market was down 20%, not 40. So a lot of it has to do also, where's the multiple? You know, right. when it's valuation. You're starting, it's valuation right. The starting point of the valuation is very important. But I think this time around, I don't think that the recession is going to be measured so much by uh, magnitude or peak to trough decline in economic activity. I expect it's going to be mild in that respect. Um, but getting out of it getting out of it is going to be really difficult because we don't have the traditional bullets. You see, uh, you're not normally running trillion-dollar deficits at the peak of the cycle. You're not normally running structurally high deficits. The deficit GDP ratio is almost 5%. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's the, the law of diminishing returns right here, that, that, that the fiscal stimulus 
by its very nature because of how bloated the deficit is. To run bigger deficits on top of this deficit, the incremental impact on GDP is going to be um, pretty small. That's why normally, if you go back historically in the post-World War II period, on average, at the peak of the cycle, we're running close to a balanced budget. Mm-hmm. And that's why when you go into deficit stimulus in the recession, it could be so powerful. Ain't going ain't gonna to happen this time around. The laws of diminishing returns, the first thing you learn in Economics 101, applies to fiscal policy. What else does? Monetary policy. That's what Powell was trying to do. Powell was trying to push the envelope. He wanted to normalize interest rates, whatever that concept means. Kept on pushing the envelope. How high can I go? How high can I go? How high can I go? What do you know? Wow, I can only get to (laughs) two and a half, two and three quarters, and the funds rate is pretty sad. Um, And so here we are, say... Uh, you know, call it uh, one and three quarters percent of the funds rate. Um, they've already cut rates three times. But you see, in a recession, the Fed cuts the funds rate on average almost 500 basis points. So for people that say, well, can we go to negative rates in the U.S.? And uh, most people don't think that that'll happen. Uh, a lot of the Fed... Uh, uh, officials will probably say that's not going to happen, including Powell. But I got to tell you something. If you go on the the Brookings Federal- Institute, right? I would say that Bernanke's been out there again <laughs> over the weekend uh, talking about it once again, right? Yeah, right. And 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 um, but you go a lot of the Fed district banks. Hmm. Interestingly enough, especially San Francisco, which is where Williams comes from, right. have been doing a lot of work on negative rates. So look, we'll say that maybe they don't go to negative rates. I think they go to what they now call. Uh, the lower bound, since they don't call it the zero bound anymore, the nice little nuance. But um, they may not go to negative rates, but they didn't go to negative rates last time either. But what they did was they created a de facto synthetic negative interest rate through quantitative easing. Sure. And I think that that's probably what they'll do is probably get even more aggressive on QE. I always wondered is is the you know the study kind of comes from Wu and Shaw right from the uh, one of them was at the Atlanta Fed uh, that created that kind of economic equivalence. I would wonder is is it really this idea of economic equivalence that QE is the same as rate cuts, QT is the same as rate hikes, and therefore it doesn't matter if we have a minus three hundred minus four hundred basis point rate. Uh, I feel like that has been injected into the economist you know, uh, vocabulary now because it's mm. like, oh, well, look at this. This model says that it's the, you're the same either way. So there's a definite impact to you know, the, the worker who is depositing their check into the bank if you're taking 300 basis points away from them every year versus someone, um, you know, let's say, doing monetization, debt monetization, and creating some other way of stimulating to make this equivalent argument. So uh, th- that's why I think is the fallacy of the negative interest rate policy is that we're arguing it's equivalence, but it's not to the end user of the financial system. Well, it, I'm just talking about the banking system it, as a whole. I know, right? but it's, 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 you know, okay, so, you know, so whether they go negative or not, we've been, say, uh, either zero or negative real after inflation for a long period of time. And it's just a different form of exactly what you're saying. It's the ultimate form of, uh, of financial repression, mm-hmm. which is what this is. Where, but you see what they're trying to do with either low rates, and of course, negative rates is uh, the problem with negative rates. Of course, is you get to these levels where you, you can't possibly do any any reliable valuation on anything. You've destroyed the time value of money. You've turned borrowers into lenders and lenders into borrowers, and it's this bizarre world. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's right. I love and, the research title. I think it was from I think it was Merrill or someone. That it put it out a couple years ago. It was bonds for capital gains and stocks for income. I was right. I, that was mine. That was yours. That was yeah, mine. Yeah. yeah. Okay, great. yeah. yeah. Sorry. So, uh, sorry. But um, yeah. uh, kudos yeah. to, to, to Goldman if they borrowed that. Though. That's okay. <laughs> this, how many original ideas are there yeah. out there? But yeah, that was no. that was well. You know, yeah. that's on. That's you know, the bizarro world. But you're that's ongoing. About. You know, yeah. I, I wrote about that today. That um, I saw two two articles um, uh, over the weekend. So this is all I also read. I read v- v- uh, vociferously. So um, whole section, whole section, and barons on income equity. Uh, and and dividends and well you're you know uh, a year after growth once again smacks value and everybody wants to be in growth stocks and momentum uh, that there's a whole section of parents eleven years into the cycle on on um, on uh, on playing from the frontiers by getting the, the dividends and so I thought that was and so how do you how do you 
get income out of the equity market. So and that's the anomaly, really, is the cap. Look, last year, for example, the long bond returned 20%. Well, because the capital gain. The right. coupon started the year like a three. So that's really the anomaly. But well, then again, the stock market did have a great year, and a lot of that was a capital gain. Can't take that away. Uh, but, um, you know, in, in terms of... Uh, you know, this concept of the financial repression. So what are these central banks doing in their economic models is they want to almost scare you into spending. Uh, they want to tax. Mm-hmm. They want to tax your, say, precautionary savings behavior. They want you to spend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love that you and, call it a tax because I've, mm-hmm. I've always viewed the negative a, interest rate policy as a tax on who has it. It's the wealthy. They, it's the savers. It's right. where the money is. They, right? they want – look, they, they – when, when – when, when Ben Bernanke uh, embarked on QE2, mm. uh, which was in uh, 2010, uh, it was rather unexpected. Uh, the day it was launched, actually, the stock market didn't do anything. But the S&P 500 was up 2% the very next day. Do you know why? Because Bernanke had planted uh, a, a column uh, on his own uh, in the Washington Post um, on why the Fed did QE. And it's right there. You can just bold it. It's right there. Uh, the wealth effect on spending. Mm, the yep. Fed and their brethren around the world <laughs> still believe in the wealth effect on spending. So what they're trying to do is um, is penalize your precautionary saving behavior to go out and spend. At the same time, uh, by cutting interest rates or by making, say, bonds um, uh, look less attractive to equities, you generate this this equity wealth effect on spending, or you bring interest rates down. Your hope is that it's going to spur on uh, home ownership demand, so you'll get an added wealth effect uh, through um, through housing prices. Which, by the way, as we saw in the last cycle, could be even more powerful than equities, since there's more homeowners than there are actually people that own equities, equities directly, yeah. or at least if they uh, a lot of people don't even know they own equities directly, uh, but they have it in their pension plan. So that's really what they're trying to do. And this is what I'm saying: we are in a you know. Look, I went to university in the late 70s, early 80s. These are, and I learned from textbooks today that uh, uh, I think we just have to maybe throw them into the, in the waste uh, paper uh, um, bucket. It's, 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 these, are, these are not the cycles, the fundamental cycles of uh, productivity and business investment and inventories. Um, the classic, the classic inventory cycle, actually the, the cycles that Alan Greenspan cut his teeth writing about you know, uh, you know, back in the 40s and 50s. These have become, and this is the other irony, is this started with Greenspan and the Greenspan put. What does the Greenspan put even mean? And then it became the Bernanke put, the Yellen put. Uh, the, now it's the Powell. It's the, Powell, the Powell pivot. At the least. Powell pivot. But so that's, that's at least alliterative. So it's an interesting phenomenon that, that um, and this is what historians will be writing about 100. This is why it will be a, a, deemed to be a failure in my opinion is that this is now, I believe, uh, the fourth cycle of asset inflation and debt accumulation. The fourth in a row. Uh, Started with uh, the commercial real estate that brought down the savings and loan industry in the late Mm -hmm. 80s uh, and the LBO craze, if you remember that. And then the Fed has to clean up that mess and we take the funds rate down to 3% negative and real yields. Then we have the next one, which is the dot-coms. Once again, um, asset inflation, debt accumulation, that bubble bursts, take the funds rate down to 1%. So let's get this down to three, one cycle, down to 1% the next cycle. And then, of course, we have um, uh, the housing situation. Once again, uh, asset inflation, wealth accumulation, and that's what that cycle is all about. And then what well, we just take the funds rate down to zero, then do QE to create a negative synthetic interest rate. So let's get this straight. Uh, we go from nine and seven eighths down to three, the late eighties to the early nineties. Nine and seven eighths down to three, and then we go from six and a half percent down to one, and then we go from five and a quarter in the last cycle down to zero or negative, and now we peaked at two and three quarters, and people don't think we're going back down to zero. Just do the. We'll just look at the perfect symmetry here, and it's the same cycle. It's just that we've. We've um, we just rotated the chairs, right? It's another cycle of debt accumulation, and, and um, wealth accumulation, and uh, and a massive debt run up, and in fact a much bigger global debt run up than we had even in the last cycle. So really, uh, how does this ultimately end? Uh, and I'm actually struck at the fact that, you know, uh, when I mentioned at the beginning of your show that there's only a seven percent correlation between the stock market and the economy. I mean. 
Well, how could that be? How could it be? Like if you'd have told me that the only statistic that I knew was that the corporate sector used a slow rate environment to flood the market with $4 trillion of uh, new uh, debt issuance, I would have thought, wow, we must be having the mother of all capital spending cycles. It's the weakest capital spending cycle of all time. That's why productivity is actually starting to erode, which is why I think employment is going to follow suit. Companies have overhired. $4 trillion of corporate bond issuance perfectly went into $4 trillion of share buybacks, giving you this allure of an upcycle in earnings per share, where actually the level of earnings, if you go to the national account numbers, haven't budged in five years. So it gives you this allure of I'm buying equities. Um, yeah. You're buying actually a commodity. The equity market's turned into a commodity, and the share count's gone down to a to a 20-year low. It's like I want to be bullish on copper because all these copper mines in Chile have been shut down. I mean, that's basically what's happened in the stock market. It's become a commodity. With no correlation with the economic outlook whatsoever, we've just basically turned everything upside down here. So um, we have, uh, uh, and to me, this is actually the principal risk. We talked about this earlier, which is that... Uh, uh, we have, if I showed you the, the chart of, of, of corporate debt to GDP, it looks a lot like the mortgage debt to GDP cycle in the last cycle. And we knew how that ended. And it was just a matter of time. I was crazy early on that call. A year and a half later, nobody remembers how crazy early I was. And I think I was been crazy early on this call too. But I know they were probably on the same page uh, on this score. That's really where, where the bubble is this time around. All right. So that, that was all prompted by the good and the, the negative in the data. I don't mm. recall hearing much good in that data. Um, do you have any bright spots in the well, economy right now? Well, I try to. You don't have to. Well, it's, just, well, well let me just say, firstly, big picture. Uh, I, I, look, the, the, you cannot be denied. You, you cannot assume this away. That last summer, for a period of a few months, the New York Fed recession risk model went above 80%. That's a foolproof recession indicator. It's a matter, is it a 12-month lag or 24-month lag? Is this going to be something that we see in the first quarter, which is right now, or the fourth quarter? And frankly, I don't think anybody is smart enough to time it. You just have to know that it's out there. Uh, and um, I'm taking a look at the leading economic indicator from the conference board and the year-over-year -year growth trend. Uh, this time last year was 5%. It's really interesting that at a time when everybody was hiding under the table because of the stock market down 20% and, oh, the credit market froze up for, God forbid, two months, the GDP growth actually um, was hanging in pretty well. That shows you, again, the disconnect between the markets and the real economy. Uh, well, that year-over-year -year trend in the LEI, leading indicator, is now down almost to zero. And when you strip out the stock market, because that's one of the 10 components, the conference board still has a, the stock market in there because it believes that it's still a leading indicator, but it hasn't been for a long time. But let's just say that when you strip out the stock market out of the LEI, it's actually running negative. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's telling me a certain impulse that if we don't get a recession, it'll be the the next level, the next rung on the ladder. What am I looking at right now? You know, we talk a lot about the November election. We have to talk t talked about it here. But, you know, this is actually, you know, let's assume that it's Bernie Sanders against uh, Donald Trump. This is, okay, so Bernie Sanders is a, a different version of uh, Elizabeth Warren. But we, we know that he's going to raise taxes. He's going to rescind the corporate tax cuts. He's going to do a whole bunch of stuff um, that is not friendly to the business sector. Well, it, it, why would you commit capital if you're a company this year? Like, you might be able to determine what your uh, ex-ante uh, cost of capital is going to be. But you're in a fog mm. about what your ex-ante expected rate of return on capital is going to be after tax. <laughs> so that's a bit of a problem. So I can't see the case. Uh, I, I, think that, um, I think that this phase one was a bit of a ruse and political expediency for the time being. I think that we're going to be in a rocky road as far as China-U.S. relations are concerned. Um, so I don't think that this trade war has come to an end. And I think that is going to have an impact on uh, supply chains and have an impact, again, on capital spending. Uh, and then on top of that, uh, you know, I guess that uh, there's a couple of things that, um, that you could argue are looking a little bit better, given that interest rates have come down. Maybe, and the home building stocks, of course, maybe that's one area of the economy that still has some leading properties. Uh, maybe you can build a view that housing will be okay. Maybe the home improvement will be okay. Um, but it's all in a relative game here. I said before that, you know, it's a game of dominoes. I compared the economy to, uh, to, to, a, 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 living, to, to a living being. Uh, we've already shocked housing. 
Uh, we already then we shocked commercial construction, shocked capex already, and uh, and uh, now we've had the export shock. And the consumer does not live in a bubble. Okay, and yeah, I think that the consumer hung in very well last year. There's no doubt about it. And you're not going to have a recession when 70% of GDP, called the consumer, doesn't go down for the count. Didn't go down for the count. Why? Because employment stayed mm -hmm. healthy. Well, I wouldn't actually um, extrapolate uh, into next year. And I say that primarily because the one thing that really bothers me is the fact that there was no capital deepening the cycle. The bull market was not in capital spending. If you're a real supply sider, isn't that what you want to see, especially at a time when we know the demographics, we know the labor force growth because of the demographics and the aging retirement boomers is, is, is a fraction of 1%. We need the productivity. Well, apparently, wasn't the repatriation of all the capital from overseas with the uh, with the tax changes and the end of the inversions? What wasn't the corporate like? What happened here? The bull market was in financial engineering. The bull market was not in capital spending. But you see, now it's coming to roost in the productivity numbers. Yeah, and so that's going to be the key test. I think we're going to have back to back negative quarters, Q three, Q four productivity. That's a signal of the business sector that we overhired, and I think we have a different employment picture. Um, now, whether or not it goes negative, that remains to be seen, but I think the unemployment rate is going to start to go up, and that's not usually a very good thing in an election year, mm -hmm. um, with or without a recession. But I'm trying to, you're quite right, I'm trying to find where are the nuggets uh, that are going to create a reacceleration in growth. Uh, well, the question I would come back is, is, why would you expect that if the leading economic indicator on a 12-month trailing basis is down almost to zero, and it's basically back to where it was a decade ago? You know, it's a, um, uh, I said before, let's drive by looking through the front window. And the front window uh, is, um, is one, I said, of, is one of economic fragility. Uh, I don't want to sound overly bearish here, um, but I do want to say that uh, you want to be prepared uh, for, I think, a pretty rough year, or to say it politely, a challenging year for economic growth. And it actually tells me you want to be less cyclical in your portfolio. Uh, you want to actually have less risk in the portfolio. Uh, but I do think that in this period where deflationary pressures are alive and well, that you should continue to think about how you can derive income in the portfolio, whether that's through dividend growth, uh, dividend yield and low payout ratios in, in uh, defensive parts of the marketplace. And by the way, I would say utilities fit that bill. Notwithstanding their valuations, they tend to get bet up at this stage of the cycle. And I would still say I like, I like, I like the Treasury market. All right. Well, I think we're going to have to cut you off there. I mean, uh, I think I got my three questions in as we talked, so that was one more than we thought we would get. <laughs> you know, uh, no, but uh, all jokes aside, it's just always just great to to wind you up and let you go. I don't think you speak fast at all, but uh, that's coming from someone who people tell me I speak very quickly as well. So, um, before you leave, though, you know, you know the drill. Sam's favorite part of the show is coming up. So, cue Sam. Yeah, before we get to that favorite part of the show, you know, maybe it's helpful to let our listeners know how they can get a hold of you at your new shop. Right. Well, uh, you know, I would say that uh, go to the website, uh, Rosenberg Research or RosenbergResearch.com. Uh, and uh, if you want to email me, uh, it's uh, Rosenberg at RosenbergResearch.com. Convenient. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and um, you know, there's uh, right, right now it's opportune because I, I just actually today put out uh, the year ahead outlook. And uh, January, uh, for courtesy purposes, uh, is uh, is free for everybody. Wow! So uh, you can come on, check it out for yourself, uh, and um, and hopefully uh, stay on as uh, as uh, subscribers like so many have over the years. And uh, and uh, hopefully it'll provide value added for everybody. Well, I've got to say, you did hear it here first. So free <laughs> free month of January from Mr. David Rosenberg at Rosenberg Research and Associates. You can uh, email him, Rosenberg at RosenbergAssociates.com, right? All right, and that takes us to my favorite part of the show, and that is Sherman Says. So, Mr. Rosenberg, rules of the road are I will give you a term or a phrase to which uh, you will provide a top-of-mind response. And what I do is I start off Mr. Sherman and then alternate between the two of you. I see and Sherman looking at one word because, but who's, Sam's who, giving up on who's, that. Who's going first? Uh, Mr. Sherman Good. will. So yeah. I, get to, I, get to learn, you get, you get, I get to learn from the pro. Yeah. yeah. I see him eyeing the back of my yeah. uh, Taco Bell, our last Taco Bell order as yeah. well here. It looks pretty paper. It looks pretty robust, that order over there. <laughs> it okay. does. Yep. So what we got here for the first one, Jeff, is overnight repo. 
Fragile. Rosie, uh, U.S. consumer. Fragile. <laughs> I Global- see a trend going on here. Yeah. <laughs> Globalization. Waning. Automation. Accelerating. Iran. Trouble. Deflation. Continuing. Plunge protection team. (laughs) Bring them back. (laughs) (laughs) Fed inflation targeting. Uh, Irrelevant. Niners. Super Bowl. Packers. Vikings. Yeah. <laughs> if you didn't know, uh, Mr. Rosenberg's a big Vikings fan, so we've got a nice little friendly competition. By the time you hear this, that game already happened. So um, I'll uh, give him a, our, our condolences for the victory from the Niners uh, for that weekend. <laughs> so anyway, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. You've been a great sport. For those of you who don't know, the, the symposium that uh, David was referring to is something that we posted to our YouTube channel. Uh, so you can look at it. You can find us on YouTube.com backslash Capital. Uh, you'll see we did about a three-hour symposium today where uh, all these insights and many more uh, were discussed. Uh, it's a great uh, conversation. It's a great piece. It, it'll help you with your 2020 outlook, we hope. And uh, for those of you that are listening to this, too, you can always catch us at DoubleLine.com. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play. Uh, there's a few that I'm missing, but um, we're always getting new places as well. So, again, David Rosenberg, thank you so much for coming in. It was a pleasure to sit here and just listen to you give us your monologue. So much appreciated. Keep up the great work, thank and we you. can't wait to, to read all the great research from your new firm. Thank you, and Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Thanks again. Bye-bye. presentation represents DoubleLine's intellectual property. No portion of this presentation may be published, reproduced, transmitted, or rebroadcast in any media in any form without the express written permission of DoubleLine. DoubleLine has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. To receive permission from DoubleLine, please contact media at DoubleLine.com. Neither DoubleLine nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. DoubleLine is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any DoubleLine entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any DoubleLine entity. The portfolio risk management process includes an effort to monitor and manage risk, but does not imply low risk. Copyright 2020 DoubleLine Capital.